0: This is a podcast from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship, a gathering of many nations who are one in Christ. This sermon is from our series on the Gospel of Mark called Jesus in Action. Our scripture reading for today is from the book of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13. Um, Listen to the word of the lord the beginning of the good news about jesus the messiah the son of god as it is written in isaiah the prophet I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way a voice of one calling in the wilderness Prepare the way for the lord make straight paths for him And so john the baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothes made of camel hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one, who, uh, the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him.
1: Thank you, Claudia, and thank you, Lord, for your word that you give us. So, good afternoon. We are starting today a series in the book of Mark. I'm not sure how far we're going to get, probably plow into chapter 3 or chapter 4, but we're going into Mark and into the series I'm calling Jesus in Action because Jesus Christ is the great sun around which all our little planets orbit, do they not? And there is no better way we could spend our time as the church of God than gazing into the face of Christ and seeing Jesus going about doing good, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, forgiving sins, dying for us, and being raised from the dead. That is the sum and essence of the Christian faith. And if you're new to Christianity, hopefully you've quickly realized we are all about Jesus, are we not? We're not about a system of philosophy or a collection of rules or a kind of um, book of ethics. We are about a person, Jesus Christ. And we are Christians because we are personally devoted to him. We have all signed up to follow Jesus as our master to death and beyond it. So we're taking some time in the book of Mark because there's nothing better for disciples than to fix their eyes on the master. Now, the book of Mark is an intriguing book. It's the first gospel that was written. It's about two-thirds the length of Matthew, Luke, and John. It's short. And most likely, according to tradition, which is quite strong, Mark was a companion of Peter. We first encounter Mark as, a, I think, a cousin of Barnabas in Acts, and he's traveling with the Apostle Paul, and he doesn't work out so well, and there's some conflict, and Paul sends him off. Later, relationships seem to have been patched up and Mark ends up with Peter. And we can imagine that in the early church, before anything was written down, Peter was preaching sermons and there's his intern Mark sitting in the front row making notes as Peter tells stories. Oh yeah, one time Jesus did this. Or he taught this, this happened. And Mark is taking notes and asking Peter for his impressions and his memories of what Jesus did. And then he binds them together in this short book, so that the whole church of God spread throughout the Mediterranean basin can benefit from this handbook of these memories of Jesus. Now, Mark is a very abrupt gospel. The most characteristic word in Mark is immediately, immediately, immediately. Jesus is hardly done doing one thing before Mark has him rushing off to the next. Mark is a man in a hurry, and he's the kind of guy who would not sit down for coffee. He would keep you standing up, He'd be checking his phone, and he'd rush out the door, and you'd hear hear Mark's tires squealing in the driveway as he takes off for the next event. So this is an abrupt gospel. Mark is going through the life of Jesus at a gallop. There's event after event after event. Scholars classify Mark and the other gospels roughly in the category of an ancient biography. Now, biographies were not usually written about someone of a low social class as Jesus, but about Kings and generals and great men and sages and philosophers who achieved and taught great things. And Mark is all about Jesus. Almost every single anecdote in the book has Jesus as the central character, except for a couple about John the Baptist and Herod. The really interesting thing about these ancient biographies is they were not written for entertainment or information. The purpose of an ancient biography, the reason you would read it, was for moral transformation. You'd pull this book off your shelf, and you'd give it to your teenage son, and you would say, read this, and the story of this great man will form your character so that you can become a better person and a better citizen. Now think about that in the context of this gospel. We're not just reading at arm's length for our own information or our own entertainment. We are reading to be changed ourselves, to become disciples who follow the master. So, as we read through this book and as we meditate upon it, let's do so with open hands and open hearts hearts that are ready to obey God and asking God, change me, make me more like this Jesus whom you have sent to rescue me. The key question in the book of Mark is the identity of Jesus who is Jesus? That's the key thing that Mark is after, the key question he's asking. And this Messiah, this Savior, gets revealed slowly and gradually throughout the book. And he's a Messiah, and he's a Savior. But as we go on through the book, we'll see that Jesus' Messiahship is very paradoxical. It's not what we would expect at all. There's victory through defeat, power through weakness, and the crown comes through the cross. That's not the kind of Savior that we expected or would want. And we need a revelation of the Holy Spirit to see that this is God's way of salvation far better than any that we could plan ourselves. Now, Jesus' way of being the Messiah is the template for our own way of discipleship. The way, the word way, is a very important word in the book of Mark. In fact, you might remember from the book of Acts that Christians, before they were called Christians, were first called followers of the way. You and I, if we have trusted Jesus and have set out to follow him, are also people on the way, following Jesus who has gone on the way before us. Now in this, in this prologue in the book of Mark and these verses that Claudia read for us, we're taken backstage, as it were. This is before Jesus steps out into his public ministry. There are things revealed to us in advance that the characters in the story don't know. Peter and John and Mary and Lazarus have no idea about the stuff that we've been reading at the time it happened. It's only later, after the resurrection, after Pentecost, 20 years later when Mark is writing this, after many years of reflection, that he can record these things. So we're led into the secret of who Jesus is. And we get to sit with Mark and watch with some irony and some amusement sometimes as the people and the disciples blunder and grope, trying to figure out what category do we put this strange, bizarre Savior in. So in these verses, Mark unfolds for us four vital things that Jesus does to open up God's way of salvation for us. Four vital things that Jesus does to pave the way to open the way for our own path home to God, our own path to the salvation that God is flinging open to the world. And these are my four points this afternoon. The first one is this, from the first six verses. Jesus manifests God's presence along the way. Jesus manifests God's presence along the way. Mark opens up by telling us his book is the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This book is about the gospel, which is an announcement, a joyful announcement, not of what we've achieved, but what God has achieved for us. That's why this book is about Jesus, not about us, primarily. And Mark gives us his favorite title for Jesus, the Son of God, the Son of God, a key title for Mark. It appears in Jesus' baptism, it appears at his transfiguration on the mountain, and it appears at his crucifixion. The son of God, the son of God, the son of God. The weird thing about the book is that even though Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah halfway through at the hinge moment, none of the disciples in the book ever realize Jesus is the son of God, or at least they never call him that. Who calls Jesus son of God in the book? The demons, Caiaphas the high priest, and the Roman centurion who executes Jesus. It's in fact the enemies of the gospel who realize the threat to their kingdom that Jesus is bringing. They feel his authority because it's directed against them and their own power. It's only later, much later, the disciples have this dawning realization this person is more than a mere man, he's the Son of God. And Mark, in his second verse, immediately connects this good news to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah. The good news of the gospel is not something private and personal. It's anchored in this historic promise that God has made to the people of Israel. And Mark weaves together this tapestry of quotations from Exodus, from Malachi, and from Isaiah. And he introduces them, only stating the name of Isaiah, because Isaiah is the most important, the most well-known of these prophets. It's really interesting when you go back and look at these quotations. And it's actually a helpful little technique for when you're studying the Bible. When you see the Old Testament cited, look in the cross-references in your Bible and look up the full quotation from the Old Testament, and there'll be a lot more richness of understanding when you do, which is certainly the case here. Uh, The first quotation is from the book of Exodus, talking about God sending someone ahead of the people of Israel as they're journeying through the wilderness to clear the way and to defeat their enemies. We won't get into that one, but the one from Malachi is really interesting. Malachi says this. These are words from the Lord. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Clearly, we're not talking about a merely human Messiah. The one being announced is the Lord God himself, the covenant God of Israel, who is suddenly returning to his temple. And by quoting this text from Malachi, Mark is saying something profound about Jesus' divine identity. And now take a look at Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. The way that the messenger is announcing is the way not of a mere human being, not of an exalted prophet, not even of some angelic figure. It's the way of the Lord himself. The people of Israel need nothing less than God himself to appear among them in power and glory, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm to rescue his exiled and desolate people. And Mark is saying, this is who Jesus is. He is the very presence of God in your midst. See, in the book of Exodus, we realize that without the very presence of the Lord, there is no salvation. Do you remember after that horrible incident with the golden calf, when Moses comes down from the mountain and breaks the Ten Commandments, And God is so angry with the people, he says, you know what, I'm sick and tired of these people. You guys, Moses, you lead them by yourself, and I can't handle them any longer. I'm going to stay behind. You guys go on alone. And what does Moses say? That unless God goes up with us, we are going to be destroyed. Unless God goes with us, only disaster awaits. And it's very easy for churches to go on a long time on their own power. We can get all involved with our programs and our orders of service and our ministry areas. And it's only after a long time we realize the glory of the Lord has departed from this place. We were going on in our human flesh, and we can plow ahead a certain ways. But eventually, it's all going to end badly unless God himself is here. Now, this church is in a process right now to find a permanent pastor, or at least a longer-term pastor. And please, pray for that process and pray for wisdom and discernment because that the selection of that person is going to mean a great deal for the spiritual future of this church. But trust me, we need someone present here far greater than any human pastor, don't we? No human pastor can fix our problems or deal with our sins or rescue us from death. What we need more then some superstar seminary graduate, some charismatic speaker, even someone with miracles and healings, what we need most of all is the Lord God Almighty to be present in our midst in the person of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is what we should be praying for. And when Christ is here, everything else is going to fall into place. We don't depend on any one person here. We depend on Jesus, the Lord God of hosts. See, Jesus is the cloud of smoke going ahead of his people by day. And Jesus is the pillar of fire accompanying us by night. Jesus is with us. He's with his people in power and glory. And there is nothing we need to be afraid of. Man, you read the account of the Exodus and in the Old Testament. They were a sorry lot of people, weren't they? But God was with them. And enemies parted in front of them, seas opened up as the people of God followed God's presence to full salvation. So Jesus manifests the presence of God among us. But going in front of Jesus is this messenger, John the Baptist. John the Baptist is sent before Jesus, John being the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus says, no one born of woman is greater than John. This prophetic figure appears, and his job it's to shout in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. The Lord God himself is coming. Get ready. I don't know if any of you followed the royal wedding yesterday. You probably had your eyes fixed to the television all day, didn't you? Yeah. As Harry and Meghan got married. Now it looked it looked effortless, didn't it? This beautiful, elaborate wedding. But you know, somewhere behind the scenes, off camera, was an extremely stressed event planner, right? I mean, if you've been married, you know that getting married is one of the most stressful events of your life. It's exhausting just pulling together a modest wedding with 120 guests. Can you imagine the kind of preparation this anonymous wedding planner must have done for months and months and months, choreographing all these people and getting the church ready and people in uniform and carriages and whatever else? Massive, massive preparations have to be made so that the prince can just stroll effortlessly out onto the steps and into the church to meet his bride. John the Baptist plays that role for Jesus. He's getting the people of God ready, trying to choreograph everything. And what they need most of all is to be a people who are repentant, a people who have received a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Because they're not ready to meet God as they are. Things are a mess in Israel, and people need to prepare to meet their God. And to do that, they need to turn from their sin and have a change of heart and open themselves up fully to God, facing him in repentance and in faith. And they need to be plunged into the water in this ritual washing that symbolizes the washing away of sins by the grace of God. This is what John the Baptist is announcing. But man, he is a strange figure, isn't he? this guy just appears out of the wilderness and he's wearing this scratchy, uncomfortable coat of camel's hair and he's got a leather belt around his waist and he's got a little jar of honey and he's dipping some bugs into it and eating them. (laughs) This is John the Baptist, this bizarre prophetic figure. And he appears out of the wilderness, this place of abandonment and desolation. The wilderness is a very creepy place in the Bible. It's where you've got Snakes and scorpions and vultures and lions and predators. And it's also, Jews believed, where demons dwelt. Demons hung out in the wilderness. And if you had to go through the wilderness, you would be going as fast as you could, looking over your shoulder, trying to get out of there, and you would have the heebie-jeebies, wouldn't you? You'd have the skin crawling on your neck, like this is not a comfortable place. It's a lonely place seared by wind and sun. And it's a place of desolation. The world was not meant to be a wilderness. God created it as a beautiful garden of life and flourishing. But the wilderness is a place of loneliness and death. It symbolizes the world in all of its fallenness. But also in the Bible, the wilderness is a place of repentance. And it's a place of renewal and restoration. It's where the people go to meet God in all of his glory. And so when Elijah appears out of the wilderness, there is a deep symbolism to that. It means there's a new beginning that's going to be made, a new encounter of God's people with their Savior and redeeming Lord. And Elijah's costume, is bizarre as it is, is no accident, and it would have immediately symbolized something to the people of Israel. He's wearing the costume of the prophet Elijah. Elijah is described as wearing this coat of camel's hair with a, le- with a belt around his waist. This is exactly how John is dressed, deliberately taking on himself the mantle of Elijah. Now, why Elijah? Of all the prophets in the Old Testament, why would you pick Elijah? The last book in the Old Testament, the final prophet to record his visions is the prophet Malachi, who we read from earlier. Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament, after the people return, after the temple has been rebuilt. The last two verses in Malachi speak of God sending a prophet like Elijah to make the people ready for the day of the Lord, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the children to their fathers. Those were the last two, bu- two verses of the Jewish Bible. And you'd flip the page, and it's blank. There's just maps and concordance at the end. That's it. That's the end of the story this new Elijah is prophesied to come. And you can imagine how that would have gripped the imaginations of the Jewish people. Like, this is not the end of it. There is another movie that's coming. This is just the prequel, and it's going to be foreshadowed by some figure like Elijah stepping onto the stage and announcing the day of the Lord is coming. Get yourselves ready. And John the Baptist is taking on himself that mantle. The curious thing, is that Elijah in the Bible, in Malachi, is not linked with the Messiah. Elijah does not come to prepare the way for the Messiah. He comes to prepare the way for the Lord himself, the day of the Lord. And so we have another piece of evidence that Jesus is more, he is the Messiah, but he's more than that. And so now, at last, God is speaking. The Jews believe that after Malachi, that was it. God was no longer speaking. No new prophets had arisen for 400, 500 years. The age of the Spirit was over in their minds. The most they could hope for was the echo of a voice. It was called the daughter of the voice. All they could hope for from God was a faint echo from the heavens. But as far as direct prophecy, in their minds, that was done and over with. And now this new Elijah appears, saying... There is a new age coming, a new era of redemption is coming. And the crowds come to him, the whole countryside of Judea, the people of Jerusalem stream down to the Jordan River to be plunged by John into the waters and drawn out again. Now, the Jordan River is also symbolic. It's not an impressive river like the Amazon or the Congo, but it has great symbolism in the Old Testament. It's where the people of Israel crossed from the wilderness into the promised land. And by choosing the Jordan River to baptize in, what is John saying? We are about to emerge from the wilderness ourselves into the fullness of God's promises. So Jesus is about to appear as the manifestation of the Lord's presence himself with John the Baptist as the Elijah announcing and preparing for his coming. That's our first point. Second point is this. The second thing Jesus does to open up God's way for us is this. He pours out God's spirit for the way. He pours out God's spirit for the way. See, John the Baptist, great as he was, was severely limited. He was the greatest of the prophets and the greatest of the children of men, but he was severely limited. He was only a preacher, and he was only a baptizer. All he did was speak words and push people under the water. That's all he did. He offered no signs. He cast out no demons. He healed no sick people. He raised no dead corpses. John the Baptist was only the opening act. And he confessed himself, I am completely unworthy in comparison to the one who is to come. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. In Jewish law, tying and untying someone's sandals was considered so demeaning, demeaning that Jewish slaves did not have to do it. You'd have to get a Gentile slave to do that. But one of God's people, to ask one of, tell one of God's people to untie your shoe was considered so degrading they were not allowed to do it. I mean, there's a lot of things we ask the intern to do at this church. There's Dave in the back. A lot of demeaning things, perhaps, we ask him to do. But there are certain limits that we could not ask him to do without getting some kind of human rights complaint and some kind of trial. It can only go so far. And John is saying... The most demeaning and degrading and humiliating act, I'm not even worthy to do that. Such is the glory and awesome authority and power of the one who's coming just behind me, just over my shoulder. See, John baptizes, but he only has a ritual. It's only a symbol. He has the ritual. Jesus has the reality. In the Old Testament, it's only God who pours out the Holy Spirit. No human being has this kind of authority, but Jesus does. And what Mark is referring to here, obviously, about Jesus baptizing with the Spirit, is looking forward beyond the Gospel of Mark to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the dawning of this new age. At Pentecost, God pours out his Spirit to show he's no longer limited to the tabernacle, to the temple, to the holy place. He indwells all of us as his holy people. God is present here by the Holy Spirit. With the eyes of faith, we can perceive God's Shekinah glory resting on each of us who belong to Christ. It takes faith, but it is truly the case that God indwells all of us. See, Jesus came not just to preach, not just to baptize, but to bring a new regime of power. We need power because we are enslaved and in darkness and we need more than words and more than rituals we need jesus to powerfully rescue us for god now moving on briskly to the third point jesus acquires god's pleasure upon the way jesus acquires he secures god's pleasure along the way in his baptism jesus appears very abruptly in mark there's no christmas story he just steps forth from nazareth as a full-grown 30 year old ready to begin his ministry Nazareth is not where we would expect Jesus to come. We would expect a savior of such awesomeness to come from a mighty place. Nazareth is not even mentioned among the hundreds of places in the Old Testament. Jesus' peer suggesting that God's way does not follow human expectations and God's power and glory does not fit our patterns. So why on earth does Jesus, the sinless one, the Lord God himself, undergo baptism? I mean, we need to be baptized like John's audience did, because we have sin. Jesus is sinless. Why does he get baptized? Jesus is baptized to show his complete solidarity with the people of God. He completely identifies with us. Jesus is the new Israel who turns fully to God. Yeah, all these swarms of people might have come to John, but as we know later in the book, it wasn't a sincere repentance, was it? It wasn't a true, wholehearted repentance. Jesus is the one who does that. And immediately, as Jesus comes up out of the water, he sees heaven being torn open. Not just slid open, torn open, ripped open. That's what he sees. And it's a reference to Isaiah 64, where the prophet prays, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. This is the longing of the people of Israel. God, rip open heaven and come down among us. We need you, God, to come yourself to rescue your people in power. And that's what happens at Jesus' baptism. See, when you open something, you can close it again. We have a little tent in the backyard the kids have been camping with, and I've been careful to remind them, use the zipper when you come out of the tent. But once you rip something, it can't easily be repaired, can it? At the baptism of Jesus, heaven is is ripped open, and all heaven is let loose upon the world as the Spirit descends on Jesus. And the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove. Actually, not on him. It should be in him. That's the word. The Spirit descends into Christ. He has the Spirit as a permanent possession. And here's this declaration of sonship. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased Why is God pleased with Jesus at his baptism? Because God loves the world so much, nothing gives him greater joy than to see his son joining him in mission to save the world. Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are united fully and completely in their desire to bring gladness and salvation to the world. And Jesus' baptism isn't just a private baptism for himself and his own benefit. There's something public happening here. He's being baptized on behalf and as the representative of his whole people. See, Jesus came to share his own experience of sonship so that he could be the firstborn among many brothers. And when we were baptized into Christ, it was as though God's voice came from heaven in the gospel and said, you are my son and you are my daughter and I am well pleased in you, not because of righteous things you have done, but because you are now clothed in Christ and belong to him. Are you a person who experiences the father's pleasure in you? Or are you tying it perhaps to your own performance and how well you've prayed and how well you've obeyed and followed God this week? Right now, as we put our faith afresh in Jesus, we can experience the father's smile upon us. That God has adopted us as his sons and daughters with the full privileges and the full welcome and the full acceptance that Jesus Christ experiences as he stands before the Father. That is what Jesus has done in his baptism. And he's given the Spirit so that the Spirit could shed the love of God abroad in our hearts. And what is the most important thing the Holy Spirit does for us? It's not primarily about tongues and healings and prophecy. The thing we need most is the Holy Spirit in our hearts, witnessing to our adoption as sons so that we cry out, Abba, Father. We need to know that we are adopted. We need to know that we belong to God and that we are not alone in this world. And now, finally, the final thing Jesus does to open the way is that he overcomes God's enemy, across the way, God's enemy and our enemy, Satan, the adversary, the source of all evil. See, the Spirit's descent and the Father's affirmation are not so that Jesus can bask in the warm fuzzies. Jesus is sent out immediately after his baptism. His clothes are still wet, his hair is still soaked, and he's launched out immediately by the Spirit into the desert. He's not just sent out. The word is very strong. It's the same word used for casting out demons, amazingly. Jesus is impelled by the Spirit to go into the wilderness to confront Satan. And we have a lot of graduates this weekend. And I hope after you graduated on this week, you've taken some time just to, ah, enjoy. After six years, I've got my degree, and I can just enjoy this and enjoy the congratulations of my friends. And we're going to have a party tonight to celebrate the hard work and achievements of all of you. But what if, immediately after you were given diploma, you were just shoved into an ambulance and brought to the emergency room or to intensive care and forced to roll up the sleeves of your graduation gown and get straight to work? That's what happens with Jesus. Things are so desperate, there's no time to waste. And immediately, the Spirit thrusts him out into the wilderness to go face-to-face, toe-to-toe with Satan himself. See, empowerment and affirmation, the empowerment and affirmation of Pentecost are not for our selfish use, just so we can feel good. Empowerment and affirmation are for mission and for ministry and for participating in the extension of God's saving kingdom in the world. And perhaps the reason we pray for the Spirit and do not receive him, we do not receive fresh feeling is because we just want him for ourselves, and the Spirit will not be used that way. He's a spirit of generosity and blessing in the world, and he wants us to be those kind of people also. So here's Satan, this fallen angel, swollen with pride and hatred against God's creation and God's humanity, and he has come to steal and to kill and to destroy. And ever since Adam and Eve faced him and lost him in the garden, there have been, he's been surrounded by corpses. All of us have gone up against Satan and been defeated by him terribly. And now Jesus steps up to face Satan, sent by the Spirit. Your first job, Jesus, is to confront the devil. And Jesus goes. He doesn't get to go in the garden like Adam did. Adam and Eve faced Satan with every possible advantage, didn't they? Jesus does not face Satan in the garden. He faces Satan in the wilderness, in a world wrecked and ruined by sin. That's what Jesus comes into. And he's tempted by Satan himself, not some junior underling like we probably face. Jesus faces the full onslaught. And we have no idea what Jesus faced. I mean, who of us here really knows the full power of temptation? Just because Jesus was sinless does not mean he knew it less. He knew it more, in fact. C.S. Lewis says somewhere, we have no idea of the full power of temptation in ourselves because we give into it so quickly. We give in almost immediately. Satan usually doesn't need to tempt us. We just tempt ourselves, don't we, and our own desires and cravings, and we're off. But when you stand against Satan and his voice, you realize there is massive spiritual power that I'm facing up to. And Jesus, for 40 days and 40 nights, without food, no locusts and honey for Jesus, he's fasting and praying and facing Satan for 40 days straight, undergoing severe temptation, and he resists. Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness kind of echo Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, don't they? They did not respond well to temptation. In fact, they were tempting and testing God. Jesus shows himself to be faithful Israel by resisting the call of Satan upon him to swerve and deviate from God's way. What was Satan's temptation? Don't follow this way. There is an easier way for you, a more glorious way, a way of immediate power. No patience necessary, no sacrifice necessary, none of that nasty weakness stuff. You can seize on to power right now without any cross and just go straight to the good stuff. And Jesus resists, thank God. Because Satan knows that if he, if he can convince Jesus to abandon the way, the human race is lost forever. Jesus is the best guy we've got. There is no one after him. If Jesus falls to Satan, that's it. We're done for. But thank God, Jesus does not. And later in Mark, he describes it as binding the strong man so he can plunder his house. All those casting out of demons and healings and raising the dead Jesus does, that's just him looting Satan's possessions. After first, Jesus has gone in alone. To face the devil. Yes, there are angels, but they only minister to Jesus after the temptations are over. Jesus does not use help from angelic forces. He faces and defeats Satan himself. So, as we begin Mark and think about our own way of discipleship, we see how Jesus opens up the way for us. He manifests God's presence along the way, He pours out God's Spirit for the way. He enjoys and secures God's pleasure upon the way, and he overcomes God's enemy across the way. So how can we apply this ourselves? If this is primarily about Jesus, what can we do to make this real in our own lives? Man, the first thing is get a firmer grip of faith on Jesus. He's the pioneer of faith, plowing forward, and we follow him. It would be very foolish to wander off into the desert alone, wouldn't it? Stick close to the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke. Nothing is heard of any Israelites who wander off after dark into the wilderness by themselves. And nothing could be more foolish than for us to wander away from Jesus to a path that, that seems safer and seems like it's going to bring more security and blessing, but in the end will leave us abandoned and alone alone and apart from God. Jesus is present now through the Spirit. This morning, or this afternoon as we sit here, confused and needy and sinful, Jesus is present in his church by the Spirit. So let's pray for and expect fresh fillings of the Spirit. There's going to be conflict with evil along the way. We cannot face the wilderness alone. But Jesus is here, victorious. And he generously gives and pours out his spirit unto all he asks, unto all who ask. Now we think of Pentecost as the day of the spirit. We forget Jesus was present at Pentecost. He is the one baptizing in the spirit. Jesus is the one taking us by the back of the head and plunging us into the spirit. And we need That feeling afresh, do we not? So let's bow our heads and open ourselves up to God and ask God, we need you. We cannot go along this way on our own. And we need your presence, O Lord. And we need to be consciously aware of your presence. And some of us are feeling lonely and abandoned and confused. And we ask that you would speak to their hearts by their spirit to know that they are not alone, that you are here keeping them safe, that you are here witnessing to their adoption as sons and daughters, and that you have gone ahead of us, and that any enemy we face is a broken enemy, an enemy doomed to defeat, and we ourselves are doomed to victory. Pour out your spirit upon us, O Lord. We want to be men and women who... And children who follow you with our whole hearts as your disciples, to do so, we need your spirit. We ask for your spirit, O Lord. In the strong name of your son, we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and our worship team to approach the stage and lead us again in singing praise to God.
0: This podcast was from Tbilisi International Christian Fellowship. Learn more about us online at TICF-Georgia.org. Thanks for listening.